Wine Access Unfiltered Podcast. I'm your host, Amanda McCrossin, here with my co-host, Vanessa Conlin, to talk about one of my favorite subjects. And Vanessa, I'm guessing maybe one of yours? It's definitely in the top three. Yes. <laughs> with champagne edging out all. We know that yes, for sure. Yes. Obviously, that takes the top spot. But <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, so we're going to talk about this concept called what grows together, goes together. And I don't know, like in your wine journey, Vanessa, like where did you, when did you start hearing about what grows together, goes together? Was it early? Was it later? That's a good question. I think, you know, I really, um, I fell in love with wine through the Loire Valley. I know we're going to talk a little bit about that today, but I, I worked for an importer for a little while when I lived in New York City, and um, we carried a beautiful muscadet, and I think that was kind of my first, not you know, introduction mm. to like oysters and muscadet, um, being just such a perfect, a perfect match. So I think that was the my first introduction. That's a great introduction. You know, it was it was introduced to me later, I think, uh, and I honestly don't feel like I really understood the concept until I started traveling to wine regions with some regularity and and I started to understand this concept that what literally grows around the grapes tends to go with the wines that are made there. And so we're going to focus on one region specifically today. We're going to talk about a few others that are great examples of it. But one region in particular because it is the fall and therefore it's truffle season, Woo-hoo! which means truffles in Italy pair really well with the wines of Piedmont. Uh, kind of, you know, where they're grown. We're gonna be, we're gonna be talking about that. It's a short season. Truffle season doesn't last long. It can also be, you know, a very intense time for truffle hunters and importers and distributors. So we'll kind of dive into some of the uh, behind the scenes inner workings of truffle land. But honestly, this is really just an excuse to talk about truffles and drink great <laughs> wine, which we always do anyway. So does that work for you? It totally works for me. <laughs> I figured. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you had truffles? Ooh. No. I don't I I feel like they've always been ever present in my life, although that's for sure not like the case. But no, I don't remember the first time I had them. It must have been when I was in New York though and you know had them. You know what? It probably was. It was probably when I worked at the core club and you know it was very fancy the truffles are very expensive and that was a place where truffles were regularly shaved on things whatever you wanted uh during the season that was probably my first like real foray into truffle territory what about you i think it was also when i was in new york i worked as a server at cafe fiorello for a while which is right across from mm-hmm. lincoln center yeah. and i think it's i think it was there because i definitely remember watching uh, you know, the the chef come out with this box and it looked like a jewel box or something. And then he opens it up and he's showing the guests what he's about to shave. And it was a totally foreign concept to me. And I was like, they don't actually look that appetizing, but <laughs> people clearly like <laughs> <They> them <don't. laughs> because they're spending a couple hundred yeah. dollars on them. <laughs> I know. <laughs> they, o- they open the box and you expect there to be like a diamond, but uh-huh. instead it's like, it literally looks like a like an animal excrement or something. Um, it does not look as appetizing as it actually is. <laughs> <laughs> You're so right. I mean, it does, kind of. Yeah, it does. They are so delicious. And yeah, I mean, you know, obviously very expensive. So I'm usually waiting for someone else to foot the bill when I order them. But you you don't have to like go over the over the top. You can definitely get them at restaurants, but you can also enjoy them at home with great bottles of wine. So I'll give you a little hack for that. And uh, let's dive into some cultural events because some really interesting things have been happening. I feel like we can't get 
through a podcast without talking about another winery acquisition. Mm -hmm. Uh, This time it's in Oregon. And ironically, I was just up visiting this winery with this winemaker. They didn't say anything. I had no clue. Um, Our friends at A A to Z Wineworks and Rex Hill have been acquired by St. Michel Wine Estates. Wow. So so what do you think um, will change or not change with this acquisition? You know, it's not the first time Rex Hill has been acquired. So Rex Hill has been a, a legendary producer in, in the Willamette Valley since the 80s. I've had some of the, you know, the great wines from back then. And then in the early 2000s, they were acquired by A to Z Wineworks. And they really, you know, I I would venture to say they probably stepped it up a little bit. Like, I always really liked the wines. Um, but just in tasting through the years and kind of, like, tasting them now, because I got to taste them when I was up there, I I think not only what, was integrity not lost in that acquisition, I would say that the wines actually, to some degree, got better because they actually had, you know, they had more space, they had uh, better facilities, they had access to more money. They acquire really great wineries, and then I don't really see, like, much improvement beyond that, if mm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I, And that's just sort of, like, my candid take on it. So I don't know if it's good or bad. I think it's okay. You know, I still think Pats and Hall wines are great. Do I think they've improved? No. I think they're, you know, they are what they are. And um, I'm still very, very happy to drink them. But I don't think it's an acquisition like, you know, when um, Stony Hill or Burgess or, you know, those are great legendary classic producers that I'm actually really curious to see what new hands will do. I don't I don't know how I feel about this. I've never seen St. Michel do anything that – um, and maybe I just don't drink enough of their wines. I've never seen them do anything that I've been like, wow, that's a really great improvement. But who knows? Maybe this will be the one. Yeah. I mean, I think we we touched on this in a previous episode, but I think sometimes these uh, acquisitions, you know, we, they can be sort of sad in a way, like, you know, it's losing the identity of mm-hmm. the original winery. But then sometimes these other companies come in with really deep pockets and can help with the distribution network or help with like winery improvements and you know so yeah I guess I guess it remains to be seen in this case we'll have to wait and see what I will say is Michael Davies is the winemaker uh across the board for Rex Hill and A to Z winemakers and he's amazing I really really like him as a person and as a winemaker so I think as long as he stays on board and like keeps that team doing what they're doing I I think it's a it's going to be a lovely partnership moving forward. We have so many different cultural events to choose from. I'm just like going through the list mm-hmm. to decide. I feel like a shout out needs to be given to our friend Evan Goldstein. Yeah. Uh, local Bay Area master sommelier, Evan Goldstein, Bay Area, San Francisco, does an amazing job because he, he runs like the San Francisco Wine Academy, Wine School. And um, he was just appointed the first ever master sommelier for a professional sports organization, which is uh, that baseball team down in the Bay Area, you know, <laughs> you know the one, the I know Giants it. or something. I've heard of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think this is super cool. I um, I feel like you know someone should tap an MW like Vanessa Conlon for this for this gig, but I'm I'm super pumped for him. And uh, what a what a cool title and gig to get, huh? Yeah, and now hopefully everyone will you know drink a little better when they go uh, go to a game. Yes. Yeah. Hopefully the wine improves at the games. It looks like he'll also be doing some work directly with the players for events. Um, I think this is a great thing. I think overall for like wine in general as a category, great news to see an organization like the San Francisco Giants really 
taking wine to the next level by bringing in a professional to oversee all of wine for, you know, what is a very, very big company. So uh, kudos to them. I'd love to see it with a few others. I'd love to see, you know, more Psalms uh, across the country sort of partake in this and like, you know, let's let's get more jobs in the wine industry. I think this is great news. I do too. Get more people drinking. That's exactly what I was going to say. Get more people drinking and drinking well. Kudos to him. And then the last thing I'm going to, I'm going to mention is, uh, this Arctic Circle new frontier for sustainable wine. Have you seen this? Wine being made in Sweden? I missed this originally, <laughs> and I was just trying to catch up on it right before we we hopped on here. So tell me, because I didn't have a chance to really dig in. Okay. Well, the short version is, Vanessa, thank God you passed the MW when you did, because you're going to have to add like seven more countries to your roster <laughs> now <laughs> if you wanted to pass it. Um yeah, I mean, the short version is, you know, climate change having warmed up things that they're they're basically saying some, you know, they're estimating a significant portion of wine growing regions are going to be uh, rendered obsolete uh, in, you know, in the next few decades. We'll see. Um, but there there is a, a group of people that are planting grapevines in Sweden and apparently making really great wine out of it. And um that's kind of the <laughs> that's kind of the the short version of the article, which is it's actually a really good article because it talks a lot about uh, the fact that they're planting hybrid grapes. They're planting in um, Sweden, Denmark, Nova Scotia, Canada, of course, which has been there. But you know, these are kind of becoming emerging wine destinations. So we'll see. I don't know. I mean, I think you know, obviously, challenging regions to grow grapes in for sure. But interesting, nonetheless. And you know, I've been really excited about seeing wines. Being seeing grapevines planted in other places outside of you know the regular uh, places that we we know as as wine professionals. So, what do you think? Are you ready to like grab your coat and go yeah, to Sweden and go wine tasting? Let's give it a shot. I love that there are there are some you know these these emerging wine regions. Uh, I mean, I think it's great. I'm I'm all for it. I don't I yeah. don't think I would nail it on a blind tasting right now, but <laughs> I'll have to I'll have to practice. <laughs> This is this this tastes uh, just perfectly Swedish to me. Yeah, no, you know I think the irony is like we always joke about the fact that wine is always grown in beautiful places, and like not that Sweden and Denmark are not beautiful. I've not been there. I assume they are, but like you know, I I enjoy the fact that I get to go to like pretty nice, usually beautifully weathered places. So I'm not super stoked to go to like the Arctic to taste wine, but like I'm down for whatever. Yeah. Maybe we can get a ski trip. Exactly. In. Exactly. We can we can make it work. Yeah. Um, I, I just one last cultural <laughs> thing that I thought was interesting was the um the reclassification, you know, yet again of uh Centimillion. Yes. Announced. Um Okay, so tell me about this because I feel like I don't fully understand this classification system. Yeah, so you know, the right bank wasn't classified in 1855 when the left bank was in Bordeaux. Right. Um Centimillion was first classified in 1955 and they have a bit of a different system. So there's Centimillion, Centimillion, um Grand Cru Classe and then there are these two tiers above it, Premier Grand Cru Classe B and Premier Grand Cru Classe a, uh, which is the pinnacle. Um, yeah, there's a reason this was confusing yeah, to me. Yeah, exactly. Even as I'm saying it, I'm like, did I get that right? Um, <laughs> so, but it's, you know, it's it's been a little controversial. And actually, it's sort of interesting to think like, what's better? Something like the left bank classification, which has never changed really. Well, maybe two exceptions, but um, since 1855, or ones where you kind of can reapply and get 
reconsidered, you know, but it's been very controversial. I'm trying to remember how many times it's been reclassified, but it's been a number. um, I think the last one was 2012. And a lot of people, a lot of wineries have been very angry. They don't think they think it's a political thing. They don't think it's been fairly run. So a lot of wineries just opted out of the classification system altogether after that. I think Osson, um, Cheval Blanc, Angelus, maybe Gaffelier, right, they all right, are right, just right. like, like, forget this. Like, we make great wine. We don't need your silly classification system that doesn't seem to really, you know, um, necessarily be based in fairness or flavor. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And yeah, mm-hmm. so yeah, so they just did it. And um, Figiac was promoted to Premier Grand Cru Classe A. And now it's just one of two with, with Chateau Pavi in that, in that category. So I'm sure they're pretty stoked. Um Wow. Yeah. But yeah. Interesting. That's great news for Physiac. It's interesting because I wonder, you know, obviously the new world doesn't have classification systems like this, Mm, right? right. They don't really exist outside of Europe. And I almost wonder if like the success of the California wine industry and other wine regions has really allowed or at least given permission to the Cheval Blancs and the Ozones of of the world to just be like, listen, we have great distribution. People like our wines. If they can sell wines like crazy in other places without a classification system, like why would we not do the same? So, you know, I think it's it's really unprecedented in a lot of ways for a French winery in Bordeaux to step outside the cultural norm and break rules because it's not something you see a lot. I mean, it, it is very tradition. It's by the book there. We do things because this is how we've always done them. So the fact that they, you know, they broke away from the system is really interesting. I think I, I like this reclassification system, although I, I always call into question whether a classification system like this is necessary or um, even beneficial. But, uh, but I, you know, I, we go, I think as like wine pros, especially here in Napa, like we talk about this a lot, like should there be a classification system for vineyards? Like should we be classifying our properties? And the reality is like there's too many politics involved in anything. And if yes. you try to think about what that would look like here in Napa, like just try to imagine that in Bordeaux. And that's I essentially like that's why it took as long as it did. But also why, you know, people, a lot of people are like, screw this. Like we're not, we're not going to do this. This is crazy. This means nothing. Mm-hmm. So politics are definitely a, a big factor in that, I assume. Yeah, I think Napa, it's way too political in Napa to ever do that. Well, in, in many regions, but definitely Napa. Congratulations to Figiac. Uh, congratulations to us because <laughs> we have another great review. Let's hear it. Let's hear uh, it. This week's review, let's hear it. This week's review is from... Cheeky bastard, Ooh. but all the vowels are gone from bastard, so that's why it could be Bustard or something. I don't know. Uh, they said, entertaining and informative show about wine and life. I love how this show explores the wine passions of famous and semi-famous people. They care about the same things in wine and life as the rest of us and are eager to learn more about wine. The hosts do a great job interviewing. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Enter- entertaining and educating as well. Thank you so much to uh, to Cheeky Bastard for the kind words. and. Let's dive into the show, shall we? Let's do it. For those of you joining us who are in the wine club, we you should have out a delicious bottle of Italian wine, especially uh, delicious because it's actually really reasonably priced. And I think, Vanessa, did you find this wine? Is this a, yes. is this a VC special? This is a VC special. This is indeed. Yes. So um, 
this is, yes, the Starta. This is the Peyton Longay Nebbiolo. Um, so lots to talk about with this, with this property. Very reasonably priced. I think it's around 20, you know, in the low 20s. Um, but one of the oldest mm-hmm. wineries in, in all of Barbaresco. It's um it's interesting because this is not a Barbaresco, though. This is a Longay Nebbiolo, um, which is, you know, people can make Longay Nebbiolo from um, areas that fall sort of just outside of the Appalachian, um, but they can also just sort of de- declassify their young vines, which is what happened in this case. So this is actually from like one of the top crews, vineyard sites, um, but kind of younger vines. And as a result, kind of, you know, well, we'll taste it, but, you know, fresher, earlier drinking and so much more affordable too. I used to put Cru Beaujolais and like Langan Nebbiolos in the same category. And then Cru Beaujolais got extraordinarily expensive. Um, and so, but Langan Nebbiolos never have. And so you're right. I mean, it is like, it's sort of these like baby Barolo Barbarescos mm-hmm. that you can get in like the 20 to $25 range. And they're delicious. I mean, I think most people will tell you from the region, like this is what the winemakers and the wineries drink while they're waiting for those Barolos and Barbarescos to, to, you know, to age and do their thing. Cause they do take extraordinary amounts of time to come around. I mean, Nebbiolo is a, uh, it's a beast of a grape. I mean, I always label it as like super tannic high acid mm-hmm. Pinot that like just is completely unforgiving. But then once it does come around, it's beautiful and it's ethereal and there's nothing else in the world that tastes like it. And truthfully, you know, I know there's a lot of growers out there who who grow Nebbiolo. You know, I Nebbiolo is one of those grapes that I struggle to enjoy outside of the region of Piedmont. I, I, will, I will flat out say I, I have yet to find a Nebbiolo outside of those regions. And I'm like, I'm down with this. I I agree with you. I've tasted some from well, there's some in some people are growing it in, in California and even in Napa, but I've tasted recently there seems to be a lot yeah. of Nebbiolo being planted uh in Australia. Um and I always give it an open mind, an open palate. It's just not the same. I, I'm I agree with you. Like it lives in Piedmont. Yeah. Nebbiolo is is named for the, the Nebbia, um, which means fog, which Yes. Arguably is because it, it um, the fog that's in that's in this area that gets pulled in. But also some people say it's because Nebbiolo has sort of like a white powdery note that that like forms on the skins. But I, I like to think it's the fog. I think it's the fog. You know, fog plays a big role in wine growing. Um, so let's talk a little bit about what grows together, goes together and this concept of wine and food pairing. So this is something that I always like to remind people because when you're talking about how to pair food and wine, this is one of the great things that you can sort of revert back to. And what I always tell people is like, if you're drinking a wine from, let's say like Europe, right? Like, and you're drinking a wine specifically from a particular region, go ahead and Google what like the famous dishes are from that place. Nine times out of 10, that's going to be your best bet for what to pair with that. Um, And you could also reverse engineer that, right? If you're having wild boar ragu and you Google like, you know, where is wild boar ragu famous? And you see Tuscany, like grab a Tuscan wine. But it's this concept that, you know, whether it's scientific or not, I think remains to be seen. But it's this concept that often the produce and the protein that is harvested around the same season each year have complementary flavor profiles. And so one of the great examples of that is Barbaresco and pork. And of course, we've got a a Langanebiolo, which is, you know, baby Barbaresco. But pigs and boar often harvested in the fall after being, uh, you know, fanned up a little bit on local 
forageable material in the woods like chestnuts and hazelnuts. They have like a sweet, nutty, spicy flavor that complements and and that can also be often found in Barbaresco as well. So, you know, pork and Barbaresco, I always, you know, say pork and pinot, but I think Barbaresco is really the ideal pairing when you're talking about like especially you know, pigs and wild boar and things like that. Um, and then when you get into the spring, you know, spring, you've got the, this beautiful asparagus, peas, herbs that are often made, uh, used to make these spring risottos that pair beautifully with things like Pinot Grigio, uh, gorgeous, high acid, bright wines. And of course, truffles being from, you know, the northern regions of Italy and Piedmont. There's so many different dishes that you could do with truffles. And so it's it's an interesting what grows together goes together moment for truffles and Nebbiolo. But I think it's one worth noting that, you know, if you're going to be enjoying some great bottles of Italian wine from the Piedmont region, like you got to grab a truffle or something like that's just – I've done that. Have you done that before? Like I've actually done it. I haven't. it's unbelievable. I have not. So I, I did a dinner a couple of years ago and the chef was like, what are you drinking? And we were drinking an old 60s Barolo. And I said, um, you know, if there's any way you can do like a braised – like braised meat with like shaved truffles on top of it, like that would be chef's kiss. And it was outrageously good. You know, when we're talking about the actual terroir, right, when we're talking about the terroir of these places – there is this, and I don't know what you think of this because terroir is this interesting concept or or I wouldn't call it concept, right? You'd call it like a notion that, uh, you know, the grapes are influenced by everything that's around them. So the soil, the weather, you know, how they're exposed to the sun, all of these different things really affect how a grape is going to manifest. And of course, that translates into the wine in some ways. But how do you feel about terroir when it comes to like you know, for example, some some say um, local forests full of chestnut and hazelnut trees often surround the vineyards in Piedmont, which influence the finished wine from those vineyards. And I, you know, there's also the example here in Napa with like Heights Heights Martha's Vineyard is surrounded by eucalyptus trees, and there's a lot of mintiness in that wine. And so we were like, well, it's the it's the eucalyptus trees. What do you think of that concept? Like, is this a real thing? Is it made up? Is it in our heads? Like, as, a, as an MW that's sort of studied this sort of concept, what's your take? I think there's something sometimes practical to it. Like, I've heard from winemakers, you know, eucalyptus, you get like one leaf in your tank, and it's going to, you know, change the profile of the wine. So how much of it is it like actually like it? Well, it just got in the tank with the rest of it versus it actually was grown nearby. But I will say there are certain places in the world where, you know, I think the Rhone, um, Southern Rhone is a great example of this, where we talk about like Garig, you know, the sort of mixed herbs and, you know, lavender and things that grow there. And I mean, I, I, I for sure pick that up in the wine. So, you know, and I don't think it's because all of things, those things just happen to fall in the tank. Um, I think I think it does influence it for sure. If we use the Martha's Vineyard example as a local example, and you consider Cabernet Sauvignon, right? And Cabernet short naturally has a bit of mintiness to it in the way of, you know, Pyrazine sort of doing their thing. But then why does why does Martha's Vineyard in particular taste so damn minty when you've got all these vineyards next door to it that don't? They do not have the that like and it's no it's very noticeable. I think most people could pick out a, a Heights Martha's Vineyard wine in a lineup and smell it and go that's Martha's Vineyard because there is something so distinct about that. So I think it's I think it's definitely a, a, a true concept for sure. 
Um, scientifically, do we understand it? Maybe not to the degree that we want to, but I think using the word magic, which you maybe mentioned earlier, you know, magic does exist in some ways. And, you know, not like the Harry Potter kind, but like just in a, in a sort of like mystical that like thing that we maybe don't fully understand. Um, I think it's also worth noting that a lot of these regions, especially in Europe, really use the landscape to inform what they grow, which of course lends itself further to this concept of what grows together goes together. In Piedmont, they produce a lot of rice, particularly uh, in Vercelli, where there's a lot of low-lying fields and and floodplains uh, versus central Italy, where it's much warmer. Of course, like, you know, your Tuscan regions, more rolling hills, and they can grow more wheat to produce pasta. And so, you know, whether or not the food has informed the wine or the wine has informed the food or whether it's this magic that we're talking about, this that's what I'm saying. This concept of what grows together goes together is a really easy one to understand and, and utilize and use it in a practical setting but the you know the reasons behind it are not fully understood it just seems to be a really good rule to live by and then of course you've got your cultural traditions right you've got regionally you couldn't always travel to <laughs> as much as we do now right like we're i'm heading to portugal soon like i i get to travel and go to lots of different places but before it was like you you made what went with the wine or you made the wine to go with the food and it was because you didn't have the opportunity to export and import wines and export and import foods like you do today with such you know normalcy and regularity um so there's so many different reasons behind it i do want to talk a little bit about like black truffles and truffles in general uh how much do you know about the truffle culture vanessa um, I think not as much as you do. <laughs> so let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm definitely not an expert on truffles by any means. And I will say if anyone wants like a little peek into like truffle culture in the way of like stateside people selling them, there's a great Vice Munchies episode that lives on YouTube now. It's like it's a it's like a 10, 15 minute long thing where they follow this truffle importer and, sell, and seller in New York. Uh, they follow him around New York City, going to all these different restaurants, trying trying to sell his truffles. Um, and it's really fascinating to watch because it's pretty cutthroat. There's like mm-hmm. three purveyors of them, three primary purveyors of them in New York City. And, um, you know, they really talk about the fact that the, the prices have to be managed. They can fluctuate from season to season. Um, you know, some chefs are really specific. And then you have like the shelf life of, of truffles being really short. But truffles, like in a nutshell, if, if anyone's like, I don't know what a truffle is. Truffles are not chocolate. We're not talking about chocolate. Uh, truffles are a naturally occurring fungus that occurs on the root of trees um, we don't fully understand why it happens. We've never been able to recreate it commercially, which is why they become so rare. So they they literally they form by these by these tree roots underground. And then they used to have pigs that would come around and sniff them out, but the pigs were like me. The pigs were like, screw this. If I find the truffle, I'm eating the truffle. It's mine now. So the pigs would eat the truffles. And they were like, all right, we can't use the pigs anymore. So they started moving to dogs. And the dogs are significantly less interested in the truffles than the pigs are. And so the dogs actually hunt them out. You know, the best region in the world for for truffles is in Italy. Uh, they They are – you can find them in Australia. There is rumor that in California they're attempting to do it um, with some oak trees here. I have not heard any successful truffle stories stateside, but I, I do know that like for the longest time there was a rumor that like Leslie Rudd was trying to do truffles back on his property in Edgehill before he passed. I don't know. I don't know whatever happened to it. I never saw any truffles come out of it. Um, but they really do just, you know, they exist in in these in these very small particular places. And the white truffles are significantly more rare than the black truffles, the white truffles of Alba specifically. They can 
only be foraged. Um, they're becoming increasingly more rare. And uh, a two pound of truffle. You want to guess what a two what two pounds of oh, truffles gosh. sold for? Um, is it to a chef in Hong Kong? This is a crazy number. It's, it's got to be over a thousand dollars, right? Um, it's it's significantly more than a thousand dollars. Is it yes. ten thousand dollars? <laughs> it's uh, it's about a hundred. It's about a hundred times times a thousand. It's one hundred eighteen thousand dollars. Are you kidding? For two pounds of for truffle, two white truffles. Two pounds. I know. I know. It's crazy, crazy stuff. And, you know, once you get into your restaurant, you know, the markup on that is insane. You know, they're not turning a crazy profit, but like they're they're making money on it. Um, it's a short season and it goes from just September to December, growing in wild in the forests of Alba. There is a white truffle festival. So if you wanted to go and like get your truffle on, you can go to Alba. It's a big truffle festival. It goes from the 10th of October until the 15th of, of November. And it's when, you know, all of the hunters go, you know, try to find all the great white truffles and send them and then they'll either you know either enjoy them in Italy or they they do get exported to the United States um this festival I've never been but I'm I'm told it it offers uh traditional dis- dishes um entertainment and then of course like you have truffle auctions which are huge uh the truffle auctions I I would love personally to see a truffle auction and they actually will do them here in New York um I've never seen one uh myself but I think it would be really interesting to to do a whole like truffle experience it was really hard to get truffles like at home for the longest time like in order to get a truffle in the United States like you'd either have to like know someone who could get them for you or you'd have to go to a restaurant and the restaurants what they'll do as you alluded to earlier they put them in the box the box comes out there's an official truffle shaver because you know they come in very 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 thin slices uh and i should know i don't are you are you more of a black truffle or a white truffle person this is like i have to say i don't think i've had enough white truffles to answer that question i've had black truffles (gasps) but yeah i i don't i struggle to think if i've if i've even ever really had them Shocking, I know. Okay, well, let me help. Let me help you out because there's ways to enjoy okay. both. So the black truffles, uh, slightly less aromatic to me. They have more of like a savory, like base note to them, and they're really good to eat. And they're really good, like if you if you want to do like a proper truffle fry, like they do at Bouchon, where there's actually like truffle pieces mm. on it. Black truffles is what you'd use for that because they texturally, I I find are a little bit nicer. They taste better. White truffles are like a great wine that has incredible aromatics, but the like the texture of it is like a little, um, it's delicious, but it's a little off-putting. So you, your white truffles by themselves, not great to eat. Mm. Like they almost have like a very thin mushroom-like quality okay. to them. But what white truffles will do that black really won't do, they'll actually kind of like melt into the dish a little bit. So like once they see heat, they just – and not a, you don't want to cook a – you don't want to cook a truffle. You don't want to cook a white truffle. They go on raw. Once they get sliced onto like, you know, one of the great examples of, of like how to enjoy a white truffle. This is so decadent. You scramble – soft scramble some eggs and you just do a little sea salt and some white truffle. It will blow your mind. White truffle and scrambled eggs is like one of the best ways to enjoy them. Um, I would argue that perhaps like a like a, a pasta dish would be just second to that. Um, but just that like gentle heat of the dish with the white truffle on top of it is like it will blow your mind. And so texturally to me, the white truffle is a, takes second second fiddle to the black truffle. But the white truffle is more expensive and more aromatic. Um, 
So they, you know, they both serve different purposes and I like both very much, but I like them for different things. Like you'd put black truffle on all your meats and everything like that, but you put white truffle on anything that's like light sauced. So when we're talking about drinking Piedmontese wine with, um, with, uh, with truffles, I'd say, you know, black truffles is where you want to be. Um, we do have another wine and I do want to mention, uh, you know, further into this concept of what grows together, goes together before we get too down the truffle rabbit hole. Cause as you know, we often do this other wine is another great example of what grows together, goes together. And maybe this will like tease a future episode because I love cheese. I love cheese. Yes. You love cheese. I love cheese. One of the so one of the great cheese regions of the world is in the Loire Valley in France. And it's this is another classic example of what grows together goes together. The wines in the Loire Valley are so good with their fresh or just slightly matured goat cheeses. And so we so the other wine that we're drinking in this episode that's not going to be in your um in your shipment but you can order it on wineaccess.com. Uh, is this uh, Rui from from the Loire Valley, which I think is it's it's also like very reasonably it priced. It is. As it's well. in the kind of mid. I think 20, it's like you said, it's like yeah, twenty five or twenty six. Um, I love this wine. Um, exactly for for the reasons you said, like especially goat cheese from the Loire with its high acidity pairs so well mm-hmm. with Sauvignon Blanc. But I also love this wine because um, you know, I think every almost any wine lover wine appreciator in the world knows Sancerre and surely has tasted Sancerre and it has sort of like a brand name recognition Um, but this is also 100% Sauvignon Blanc it's not far away from Sancerre Um, and I I, I love for people to try it especially now because um, Amanda I'm sure you've uh, been hearing about you know we've had some really short vintages uh in europe in several regions i mean you know burgundy has suffered a lot certainly but so also have um you know portions of the loire valley like sancerre where in you know 2020 21 um you know we're, we're looking at like significant loss it doesn't mean that the quality is down it just means that the quantity is down and so I love this wine because I think if you're a Sancerre yeah. lover, you might see a shortage on your shelf of that, or you might see prices rising a little bit. And I would say branch out to this. You're going to love it too. Yeah. And do yourself a favor when you grab that, go get yourself like some fresh chev. So some fresh goat cheese, get it from the Loire Valley and just like watch it light up because the thing, and we'll talk about this maybe in a future episode. The thing with cheese is like, it has a lot of hidden acidity. You want really high acid white wines to go with that. So that a great, another great example of what grows together, goes together because so many great cheeses made in the lower Valley, so many great white wines made in the lower Valley. They just tend to work really, really well together. So next time you're doing like a cheese board, definitely look to the Loire Valley for reds and whites for that matter. Um, Cabernet Francs from Chinon, Chenin Blanc, uh, Sauvignon Blanc from any of the aforementioned regions, all really great wines to pair with all of your cheeses. And if you can get them from the Loire Valley, even better. If you go to a good cheese shop and you you mention the Loire Valley, they're likely to like geek out with you and find you some really fun stuff. Speaking of geeking out, we've done quite a bit of geeking out this episode and I'm, I'm definitely here for it. Uh, this red wine was delicious and I feel like it needs to be noted that it was it, it's lovely with a little chill. So if you're enjoying this at home and you haven't done a little chill on it, one of my favorite things to do with these red wines that, you know, have a little gusto, like they're intense but not overwhelming, you know, and they have this liveliness to them, they can be really brightened up in the fridge for about 15 minutes. So go ahead and put that in your fridge. I like to enjoy it in like a burgundy glass, but like honestly, 
whatever you got. Like this is such a no frills wine, even though we're talking about a very frilly thing in the way of truffles. This is such a great wine to pair with lots of different things or enjoy in its own. So if you don't have access to truffles, which by the way, I did promise that hack and I'll give you in a second. If you don't have access to truffles, um, you know, feel free to enjoy this with a variety of different dishes, but Google like what's Google some great dishes in Piedmont and like have a little Italian wine night. The hack for getting truffles, because as I mentioned, restaurants were, you know, kind of the only place you could get them or you had to know someone. Uh, Truffle Shuffle, if you don't know them, get to know them. They're amazing. These guys used to actually sell us truffles at, uh, at press back in the day. They started this company and have like done an amazing job with doing lots of classes, but they actually sell truffles, you know, properly sourced truffles and all these different, you know, truffle salt, like good stuff, by the way, like truffle oil is for another conversation. I don't have the time or the bandwidth to dive into truffle oil and the complications that are truffle oil today. Um, Not judging, but you know, it's a thing. Uh, They make really beautiful truffle-based products, but you can also, during season, actually buy whole truffles, and their pricing is really, really fair. Um, It's consumer-friendly, and just order them online. Uh, Just know (laughs) – I made this mistake. Just know that, like, once they arrive, they will stink up your house for, like, a pretty long time. I bought one for my mom for Christmas, and I hid it in the wine fridge when I was home, and we all came home from dinner one night, and the house – like, it was in in a paper towel in a Ziploc bag, in a Tupperware container, in my wine fridge. And it's still, you could smell it outside of there. So they're very, very aromatic. So just know that like there is no surprise when it comes to truffles. Like they will be ever, um, ever present once they arrive in your home. This has been such a fun episode and now I'm starving. And anything else you want to mention before we we head out? I just had one last question for you because you mentioned like the soft scrambled eggs with the with the Uh-oh. white truffle. So I guess my question, is that your like all-time favorite pairing or the preparation, I should say, or is there something else that would top that for you? I'm a I'm a pasta person. So I'm, you know, white truffles and pasta probably edges it out for me personally. But I will say like categorically across the board to me, simple is always better. And like a great a great soft scramble doesn't take very much work. Uh, it doesn't take very much money. And you know, I love that sort of high bro, low bro thing. So like they kind of like they go, they go neck and neck for me. But like you know, what my mouth wants is usually more like pasta. So like, you know, creamy or like an oil-based pasta with little white truffles and good butter. Always, always good, good butter. butter. Yes good butter is everything. Mm-hmm. Um, for those of you who aren't a member of the Wine Access Unfiltered Wine Club, uh, you should definitely consider it. It's it's out. It's happening. Um, we've got another shipment coming out soon. So if you haven't signed up for it and you want to drink along with us, we are having a lot of fun with it. There's four wines. Or, yeah, four wines in every shipment. It ships six times a year. It's 120 bucks. And uh, of course, myself and Vanessa select them. And they're, as you all know, always selfless choices because we only want to drink on this show what we like. We have no interest in drinking wines we don't like on this show. So it's selfish in the box as well. It's really coming at you full circle. Uh, it's really easy to sign up. You can find the links uh, to that as well as everything else we talked about in the description below. This has been a lot of fun. I can't wait to come back. Please make sure if you're not subscribed to do that and leave us a review if you're so inclined and maybe you'll be the next reviewer of the week. And uh, Vanessa, thank you so much for lending us your expertise. As always, this is the Wine Access Unfiltered podcast produced by Chappie Cottrell with your hosts, Vanessa Conlin and Amanda McCrossan. Thank you so much for listening. See y'all later. Cheers. Cheers.